It's a joy to be with you all. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to the book of Colossians. And we are going to finish up chapter 3 this morning. Well, everyone excited for the snow? (laughs) I'm a snowboarder, so this is getting me super excited. So the season has come and it has hit us hard. My goodness, it's wild out there, but we're all Burtons. We'll survive. We know how to survive in this. Well, we as a church, we've been walking through the, the letter of Paul to the church in Colossae, and it's been a very fascinating letter where Paul has basically been giving this beautiful historical account of who Jesus is, defining the the beauty of Jesus, defining how Jesus is God, defining not only who Jesus is, but now we as the church, how we're supposed to have our life in him. And we've been studying about how knowing Jesus and following Jesus can really bring a transformation into our life. And as we thank God for who he is, he transforms us into the people that he desires us to be. And so we ended last week in the middle of chapter 3, and in the middle of chapter 3, Paul reminded us that if we call ourselves followers of Jesus, then all of life should be lived through knowing Jesus. And following Jesus should transform how we view ourselves and how we live our life. So he ended that section by talking like this. And remember, we did the two comparisons. We did the comparison of a community we would love to live in and a community we would absolutely despise to live in, right? And the community we would despise to live in, how did we describe that? One of anger, selfishness, evil, injustice, right? Everyone seeking their own desires, no one caring about each other. But on the other hand, we said the community we would love to live in is the community that Paul begins to describe in verses 12 and 13, where he says, put on then as God's chosen ones, in other words, as God's people, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, And if one has a complaint against each other, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, you must also forgive. And again, we said, who wouldn't love to live in that community? Who wouldn't love to be that type of person? But the struggle we have is, as humans in our own strength, do we have that power in in and of ourselves? No. And so Paul says this in verse 17. He says, so whatever you do, And word or deed, do everything, everything in the name of what? In the Lord Jesus Christ, right? And so Paul's giving us this this example where he tells us that every one of us live out of an identity. And that identity drastically changes how we live our lives, right? Right? If your identity is an NBA basketball player, what are you going to spend the majority of your time doing? Basketball, practicing. If your identity as a musician, what are you going to spend the majority of your life doing? Practicing your instrument, playing songs, playing music. If your identity is as a doctor, what are you going to spend the most of your time doing? Hopefully saving lives and hopefully some practice if you're a surgeon, right? 
And so our identity drives so much of our activities that it drives so much of not only who we are, but what we do. And Paul is saying that if your identity is in Christ, then everything you do in life must be practicing the way of Jesus. Because that primary, that ultimate identity transforms you to be the people that you're called to be and practice the way of life that God has called you to do. And so, therefore, Paul begins all of chapter 3 in the beginning there, basically setting the stage to remind us that every action, every thought, every relationship should be done in the name of Jesus, should be done the way He desires and calls us to live. Now, answer me this question. Where is it the most difficult in life to actually live out what God has called you to be and do? Where is it most difficult to follow Jesus? Those you know the best, right? And how would we describe those people that we know the best? Parenting, marriage, work, right? And it's pretty fascinating, the passage that comes right after this section of Scripture, Paul basically comes and says, you need to follow Jesus in every aspect of your life. Let me talk about three major ones. And he talks about marriage, he talks about parenting, and he talks about work. Why? Because those are the hardest relationships to actually hide who you truly are, right? When you're a spouse, you get to know your spouse pretty intimately in depth, don't you? You're, yeah, too good at times, right? <laughs> exactly, too good at times. When you're a parent, your kids know all your flaws, don't they? <laughs> and when you're in a, a working relationship and spending day in and day out with the same people, they get to know you very deeply. And so what Paul has begun to teach us is that to apply this identity in practice, to follow the way of Jesus is not just some abstract thought, it's, it's incredibly tied to the everyday areas of our life. And we must apply this, this newness of life, as Paul says, this new creation life, this new identity through the lens of the relationships that are most close to us. And so let me read this passage for us from our scripture today. It's going to be uh, chapter 3, verse 18, and we're going to go to chapter 4, verse 1. And Paul's going to bring out these three different relationships. And, and again, we as modern readers today, um, I'm going to have to do a lot of explaining for these texts because we read them with modern eyes and we don't actually understand how revolutionary what Paul is saying here. And so I'm going to bring us through the entire text, and then we're going to talk about what is really going on and the power of what Paul is saying. So let's start in verses 18 together. And again, even though you may have like red lights go off in your head with some of this stuff, let me process it together with us. So verse 18, wives, submit to your husbands. So there might even be some red lights going off, but don't worry, I'll, get, I'll explain what's going on. Wives, submit to your husband as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be 
harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. This is the word of the Lord, amen? And so Paul brings this up in a, in a very powerful sense. And we read this text and we sort of shrug it off and say, you know, it's, it's not crazy, it's not that revolutionary, it's not radical, but in this context, we have to remember the first century that Paul is writing in. He is saying something absolutely revolutionary here. He is saying something absolutely radical. Because Paul here is speaking directly to very interesting people. Now, let me process this together because what would have been known in this passage of Scripture is what Paul would have been writing is commonly known in the Greco-Roman world was a household code. And a household code would basically be what? Something that would explain how families, how relationships with parents and with workers would be structured. And the common household code in the Greco-Roman world would be these three major categories. Marriage, parenting, and work. And Paul takes this code that was very common and absolutely flips it on its head and absolutely dramatically transforms what the Jewish and Greco-Roman world would have expected him to say. And the first radical thing that Paul says is simply in who he's actually talking to. In a common household code in the Greco-Roman world, who would be the primary audience that Paul would even be speaking to? Any guesses? The men. He would speak to the husband. He would speak to the father. He would speak to the master, the owner. Yet, what do we see Paul doing here? Where do we see him speaking? Not only does he speak to the men, but who else is he speaking to? He's speaking directly to the wives. He's speaking directly to the children and directly to the bondservants. So that alone should tell us, again, from a cultural perspective, something is going on here because this is actually unheard of. This is actually completely radical. Why? Because wives, children, and servants basically had no status in that culture society. They weren't even regarded as fully human beings in that culture and society. And yet Paul speaks to them directly. He's humanizing them. Now, the proper way, again, for Paul to speak would be, husbands, go tell your wives this. Fathers, go tell your kids this. 
Masters, go tell your bondservants this, but Paul humanizes radically to genuine personhood those who are less powerless, those who are less dignified. And so, first of all, I think from a cultural perspective, we have to realize if there was any protesters, if there was any animosity against this text in Paul's culture, who would it be coming from? The men. They would be absolutely shocked. They would absolutely be offended. And so what we're learning first and foremost already is that Paul is turning this first century understanding of relationships completely upside down. Paul is completely shattering the Greco-Roman understanding of relationships. And the men would have been getting mad at Paul because they're saying, you are wrecking, you're destroying, you're tearing apart our established forms and orders of things. Therefore, it's very much revolutionary and radical what Paul is doing. Now, why would Paul be willing to make such an offensive writing? Why would Paul be willing to write something that would be so um, anti-cultural to what is going on with these relationships? And Paul's already said it previously, because what does the gospel do? The gospel transforms. The gospel changes things. The gospel completely eradicates some of our paradigms as humans of what relationships should look like and how they should be structured. And Paul begins with, again, these core categories of marriage, of parenting, and of work. And he begins to untwist, and he begins to untangle, and he begins to restore these relationships the way they were designed. And so, again, these three relationships, marriage, parenting, and work. So, Let's just think about this for a sec. Just the audience that Paul is writing to, even the way he talks to them. Because he talks about wives serving and loving their husbands. That wouldn't have been culturally that provocative at all. Because in a Greco-Roman household code, guess what the woman had to be in the marriage? She had to obey her husband. In other words, there was a submission, there was an obeying. But Paul says, wives are called to love and serve their husbands. And then he says, and what are husbands supposed to do? Love and serve their wives. He goes, children are supposed to love and serve their fathers and parents. And parents, fathers, are supposed to love and serve their children. Not only that, servants were supposed to serve and love their masters, but now Paul says, and masters are supposed to love and serve their servants. It's absolutely a paradigm shift of what Paul is working through. And so these household code that, that Paul is really reestablishing is quite dramatic. And again, the first century women, children, servants, they were basically treated as mere objects, they were treated as uh, property. They were treated as valuable simply for what they could accomplish. And yet the Jewish um, concept even of, of uh, marriage, women, and children were almost the exact same because the Jewish concept, does anyone know what a Jewish male would pray every day? And he would thank God that he wasn't what? Any guesses? A, a woman? 
But a Jewish male would literally pray every day, and this would be a prayer of thanksgiving, that God had not made him a Gentile, first of all, a slave, or a woman. And yet Paul now in this passage is completely transferring that and saying, actually, no, what did we learn last week? There is no and you remember, there is no Jew, Gentile. There is no um, slave free. There is no male, female, as he talks about in Ephesians as well. And he's breaking all these paradigms down and humanizing those who are so devalued in the culture. And so the position that Paul takes is humanizing to the Jewish world. But if we think that mentality in the Jewish world was bad, it's even worse in the Greco-Roman world. Because in the Greco-Roman world, uh, you basically had male slaves, uh, sorry, women, slaves, children, property. That's all they were. Property. To be managed and maintained by the husband or the father or the boss. And it's interesting, who here has heard of Aristotle before, the great Greek philosopher? Um, radically uh, changed Western philosophy, probably one of the most prominent Western philosophers there is. And he would often write about household codes as well. And let me give you a, a little example of his writing talking about how to household, uh, manage the household. And so he talked about this. He said, uh, he didn't think women had the relational capacity of men, so he said they had to be ruled by their husbands. That's Aristotle. But listen to this quote from him from his book, Politics. He said, Hence, there are by nature various classes of rule, uh, rulers and ruled. In other words, there's a hierarchy. There's the rulers of the world, and there's people that are ruled by the rulers. And he says, For the free rules the slave, the male, the female, and the man, the child, in a different way. And that was the Greco-Roman world. That was the household code. That was the structure. And so the code is wives are subject to their husbands, children are subject to their fathers, and servants are subject to their masters. And there's no conversation about it. And so wives and children and slaves all had responsibilities but the men in those relationships had rights. They had authority. They had rights over these pieces of property, but they had no responsibility toward them. And what Paul is saying in this passage is, no, you can't think like that because you actually have what towards these people? You as well have responsibilities. And Paul says specifically, you have responsibility to what? To love, to care for to look out for. And so this radical reshifting by Paul is quite profound. And everything gets turned upside down. And so there's a little historical context for us. There's the household codes of the Greco-Roman world. There's the insight to the Jewish world. And that should give us a framework for how to understand this passage. And that gives us an idea how to enter into this historical context in which Paul is speaking to. And so he's saying that despite what you may think, as husbands, as fathers, as masters, 
you actually have a responsibility to love those. And so the first major thing that Paul brings up is that if you are in Christ, you are a new creation, and you're called to live the way of Jesus. So he says, be Christ. And first and foremost in this text, he says, especially to those who are the most vulnerable in the relationship. Because again, in this context, who's the most vulnerable? Who's the most vulnerable in the Greco-Roman world between a husband and a wife? The wife. Who's the most vulnerable in a Jewish world in the husband and the wife? Do you know how the divorce clause in Deuteronomy was written to protect women? Because when men could just divorce them and leave them abandoned and they'd be basically hopeless and helpless? Who's the most vulnerable in a parent-child relationship? Child. Who's the most vulnerable in a, a boss and a worker relationship? The worker. And, and so the first shift that, that Scripture teaches us in being new creation and understanding how we view daily relationships is that our first and foremost calling is to humanize everyone and treat everyone with value and dignity, and especially take care of those who are most vulnerable. Amen, church? Amen? A little more conviction than that, right? That's a key shift. That's how the gospel radically changes our relationship. And so let, let's walk through these three things and, and start breaking them down. What does this look like? How do we love those who are most vulnerable? Well, let's look at, first of all, what Paul says about marriage. And so, in marriage, Paul says, first of all, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Now, again, this wouldn't have been shocking in that day at all. Uh, it may be uh, misunderstood from us today. But when we talk about submit, what are we talking about? Are we talking about hierarchy? No, because what did Paul just say? There is no hierarchy anymore. We're under the gospel. There's no hierarchy anymore. So it's not about authority, power, or worth. I, I mean, even, even Scripture talks about how Jesus submitted to Mary and Joseph. Now, does that mean that Mary and Joseph were higher in hierarchy over the incarnate Christ? No, not at all. And so Jesus gives this example of submission means really to put in other person's interests ahead of our own, to sacrifice for someone, to do something that costs us something out of love. And the greatest act of submission that we read about in Scripture is that Christ willingly submitted himself to the cross. He willingly died for the sake of the other. He died for the sake of those who were most vulnerable. And so submission in this text really just means to move beyond self-interest, to think of the other person and not just ourselves. And I mean, how beautiful would a relationship with your wife look like if that actually happened, right? Any husbands, would that be an amazing relationship? No? No one's with me there? Everyone's scared to say it, right? <laughs> But there's beauty. I mean, let's take this back a step because when we talk about submission, we think of it in negative context sometimes, but is submission not a beautiful thing when acted out properly? Yeah? And in fact, as followers of Jesus, we are all called to submit to one another, aren't we? 
Ephesians 5.20, Paul tells the church, submit to one another. In other words, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you have a calling to submit to other people. Why? Because you have a calling to not only look to your own interests, but to the interests of others, to serve and to sacrifice for the sake of other people. Therefore, the very calling of Jesus is to be a submission in love for others, to be sacrificial in love for others. And so Paul says, really, it becomes about focus on how we can love and serve as wives to their husbands, as fitting to the Lord as he describes. And so this is the the beautiful reality that Paul has called wives to. Now, here's the shocking part of the text. Here's really what would have perked the ears of the church. Because he just doesn't say what women are responsible for in the relationship. He also tells the husbands that they have a responsibility. Again, they don't just have rights in the relationship. They have responsibility. And it says, husbands, what are we called to do? Love your wives and do not be harsh with them. In other words, husbands have a... a, a calling that love is first and foremost an act of sacrifice, isn't it? It's an act of devotion. It's an act of care and compassion of looking to the needs of the other. And Paul's a little little more bold in his letter to the church in Ephesus because he says, husbands love your wives as what? Does anyone know? As Christ loved the church. And how did Christ love the church? By giving himself up for her. In other words, the greatest act of sacrifice and submission. Amen? And so Paul is, again, reorienting these relationships to mutual submission, to care and compassion and love and service to one another. And so, again, there's, there's beauty there, isn't there? This is how marriages are supposed to function when we sacrifice out of love and serve out of love for one another. And and I know there's there's discussions and talks at times about gender roles and especially in the marriage and husband and wife, but at the end of the day, whatever your view and understanding of gender role in the relationship is and how you understand marriage and spousal roles at the end of the day, It doesn't matter because the calling of Christ is to completely give ourselves to one another out of sacrifice and love, isn't it? At the end of the day, that's the calling. And that's what Paul is reminding us of here. He doesn't go beyond that in describing a marriage relationship. He says, you want to know what marriage is all about? Sacrifice and serve and love one another. Amen? Amen? Then he goes on to children. He talks about the parent-child relationship. What does this look like for, for parents and children? Verse 20, children, obey your parents in everything, period. Kids like to hear that? <laughs> now again, context here. Is Paul saying that if a parent tells a child to do something sinful or against God, they should listen? No, as everything in the Lord, right? But children, obey your parents. In, in other words, there's this responsibility that children have as well to show love 
and compassion and respect and patience to their parents. Now, again, as parents, that's not the dream life, is it not? Like, that's the, the best thing you could ever imagine is a kid that actually listens to you and respects you and does everything that you desire for them to do in love, right? I mean, we go through this constantly right now because Allie is waking up like 10 times in the middle of the night and she keeps crawling in our bed and waking everyone up and screaming and crying at Alethea. And we're just like, go to bed because it's going to be good for you. You're going to get rest. Everyone's going to get rest. But instead, it's screaming and yelling, right? And it creates conflict in the relationships to the point where even Alethea is screaming at her, go to bed. But again, the ideal relationship, a child transformed by the Spirit of God will respect their parents and will love their parents because their parents realize that they love and sacrifice for them. But here's again the, the controversial part. And here's the thing that would have blown the mind of the original readers. Because not only children have responsibility to their parents, that was assumed. Then verse 21 Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. In other words, when we get frustrated with kids that can be harsh and defiant and rebellious at times, it can so easily turn to a power struggle, can it? It can so easily turn to, I'm an authority over you. You do what I say because I tell you to. It can so easily turn into anger and rage. It can so easily turn into abuse of authority and of power, right? And Paul says that can't be part of your parenting. That can't be part of the way that you treat your kids. Why? Because what are you going to do with them? What are you going to produce? They will be discouraged. Nothing they could do could ever be good enough or nothing they could do could ever be right, or nothing they get excited about is what truly matters, or everything that you're pushing them down on just discourages them and depresses them, right? The opposite of a parent that tries to lift up and encourage and edify and build their child. So that's another major relationship. Then he says for, for bond servants and masters and slaves. So again, this language can be uh, misunderstood as well because when we talk about first century slavery, sometimes our mind goes to more of um, uh, the Americas and what happened with the slave trade. Uh, this, this is very distinctly different understanding of what the Greek word doulos is. Because a slave in that day, a bond servant is the translation they would basically be in charge for all the menial tasks of life. Whereas today, we have toilets, we have electricity, we have all these things. Yet in that day, did they have any of that? No, for society to function, they would literally run on bond servants. And so they would be um, basically hired for a term, sometimes short term, sometimes long term, but it's, it's different than how we associate with slavery today. But nonetheless... This is what Paul begins to write. It says, Bondservants obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Okay, that's a given. That's an obvious in that culture. But then he challenges them on motivation. And this is fascinating. 
Because it's pretty easy to go through the work week just mindless and doing it for the sake of doing it, right? He says, not by way of eye service as people pleasers. In other words, don't just do it so you look good. Don't just do it so people praise you. Don't just do it so you can be worshipped or celebrated. Don't do it for the wrong motivation, in other words. But he says, but do it with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for who? Not for men. In other words, when you work, motivation matters. Motivation is the heart of worship when it comes to work. Because who has ever done a task and completed it, but absolutely despised and hated doing it? Anyone? <laughs> and if you think back to the first century, and you're one of the bond servants who were in charge of, of cleaning up all the troughs of, of poop and piss that went down everyone, would you have much motivation to be joyous in your work? Not at all, right? So Paul is saying, you know what? Even though you may despise the task that you're doing, you have to have the right motivation. And here's the motivation that he gives. He says, knowing that from the Lord... You will receive an inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. And here's the thing in that culture. Bond servants had no rights. In other words, no matter how hard they worked, they couldn't work themselves up to success, so to say. They were very much hopeless in their occupation. There was no reason for them to work because there was no momentum that they could build in life. There was no inheritance waiting for them. There was no reward waiting for them. And Paul reminds all the slaves in the church, he says, you know what? There is an inheritance, the kingdom of God, what God has planned for you. You are serving God. He says, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there's no partiality. In other words, don't Live unjustly in your relationships with your master, your boss. That simply tears more relationships apart. Now, again, here's the controversial part. Bond servants were expected to do all that. Here's the controversial part. Masters, treat your bond servants how? Justly and fairly. Now, again, from a master's perspective in the Greco-Roman world, your bondservant was possession. It was property. There was no human dignity. There was no human value. Why would I treat something like that justly and fairly? And so Paul, again, is humanizing. He's elevating the people who had no rights or status in that culture. And here's the motivation that Paul gives to masters. He said, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing what? Knowing that you also have a master in heaven. In other words, you're accountable to God. And God is your master. God is overseeing your life. God is in charge of your life. And so if you're going to act unjustly, if you're going to mistreat people, if you're going to take advantage of people, if you're going to dehumanize people, what do you expect God to do for you? 
If that's the way that you think life should be lived, what are your expectations of God? In other words, you are accountable to God for the very way that you act and treat people. And so Paul brings all these relationships and he reminds us that when the Spirit of God comes and we become new creations in Christ, an absolute revolution takes place, especially in our relationships, especially in the people we live with and work with. And he reminds us that all people, all humans have equal dignity, all humans have equal value, and he reminds us that we're called to serve and love and to submit to one another. Now, the question is, why does God do this? Why does he establish these relationships? Why does he call to live this way in these relationships? Well, God puts relationships in our lives first and foremost to show the love of Jesus. Amen? In other words, when we love our spouses, when we love our children, when we love the people we work with, what are we doing? We're showing them the love of Jesus, the love that we have experienced in Jesus we get to show to one another. But here's the other wild part. But in another way, we also have an opportunity in our relationship to show the love we have for Jesus. You guys get what I'm saying? Why? Because when, when Paul reminds us that all humans have value and dignity, when he reminds us that wives and children and slaves have value and dignity, what are we being reminded of? That they are created in the image of who? They're created in the image of God, which means they have intrinsic value and dignity. And so he sets up this paradigm for not only for us to show the love of Jesus, but also creates an opportunity for us to show the love that we have for Jesus to his image bearers. And this is why he said in the last passage, in verse 11, when he talks about there is no barbarian, there is no free, there is no slave, there is no male or female, there is no Gentile, there is no Jew. In other words, you have the responsibility now as the church to humanize everyone and give dignity to everyone and to show love and respect to everyone. Isn't that life transform when we think about it? Now again, we, we can think of that in conceptual reality. We can think about that just in our minds, but actually bring it down into your relationships. That means when you show anger and rage against your spouse or your child, what are you actually doing to them? Are you treating them as image bearers? No, you're dehumanizing them. When you as a boss are yelling and screaming at your employees or frustrated or anger, are you treating them as image bearers? Or are you dehumanizing them? You, you see how close this comes to home? Because Jesus is reminding us, not only just we have an opportunity to show the love of Jesus, but we show our love for Jesus by how we treat his image bearers and the most closest relationships to us. That's difficult, isn't it? That's why we need the filling of the Spirit. And so 
I want you to contemplate and I want you just to bow your heads as we prepare for communion. And I want you to spend some time in prayer and reflection at this point. Because we are in all kinds of relationships where we have maybe structure of authority or power. Many of us are parents. Many of us are bosses. Many of us are spouses. And living out our faith as new creation, living the new life that Jesus has for us, means that treating those who are vulnerable in relationship to us with dignity and respect and honor. And that is what brings glory to God. And so I want you just to think about some of the relationships in your life. If you're a spouse, think of the way that you've been treating your spouse. If you're a parent, think of the way that you've been treating your children. If you're a boss, think of the way you've been treating your employees. If you're a worker, think of the way you've been treating your coworkers. Think of the way you've been treating your boss as well. See, all these relationships need to be transformed. Transformed by the Spirit of God. And so I'm just going to leave some space and time for you to pray. You might need to spend some time in confession towards God. You might need to spend some time asking God to reveal some of the sin in your life. You may need God to reveal where have you been dehumanizing others or taking advantage of those who are vulnerable. You may need to ask God, even if you're not a Christian, I need help with my relationships. I need your way to do relationships. I've seen mine have failed over and over again. And so I'll leave space and time to pray on your own, then I'll pray in a minute. Gracious Father, we come before you. Lord, as a people who so desperately need your help, your wisdom, your guidance. Lord, especially when we look to our relationships. Lord, so often we devalue, we dehumanize those around us. We look to our own interests selfishly. We strive for authority and power. We want control. And yet, the life that we are called to have in you completely transforms all those desires. And Lord, we pray that as we follow you, that by your Spirit you would transform us to be a people who submit to one another out of love, out of care and compassion. Lord, a community of humility that looks to the needs of the others before our own. Lord, that you would transform us into a community of forgiveness that does not hold resentment or bitterness. 
Lord, that you would transform us into a community of love that does not build from anger or hate or animosity. Lord, we are helpless on our own, but you remind us that you have given us your spirit to empower us, the lives that you desire us to live and the lives even that we want to live. And so we pray that our identity in you, Jesus, would be so deep and ultimate in our lives that it would completely transform our lives. That we would truly live out of the identity that has been gifted to us through you, Jesus. Lord, I pray for all the relationships that you've been brought up in this room. Lord, I pray for the marriages. Lord, I pray for the parenting. Lord, I pray for the work relationships. Lord, I pray that as we ask that your kingdom would come in this earth as it is in heaven, that those first and foremost would be transformed among us. And that people could see the way we parent, the way our marriages function, the way we are at work, and they would see a glimpse of your kingdom. Lord, a place where all are valued, a place of love and sacrifice and submission, a place where we put the needs of others before our own, a place where everyone is cared for and everyone has responsibilities to one another. We thank you for this guidance you've given us. May we as your people be faithful in living it out. Thank you, gracious God. Amen. Amen.